Hey, Kenny here with a quick editor's note. Sam and I talked for such a long time on this topic that we decided after the fact we were going to split it up into two separate episodes. So this is part one of our discussion of On Fairy Stories. Enjoy. Welcome to the Entmoot Podcast. I am Kenny Tallarico, and I'm here, as always, with Sam Lieberman. Sam, how are you doing? I'm doing great. I'm stoked to be talking about On Fairy Stories. I've read this before, but yeah, it's an awesome essay, and I think... We were saying this earlier, I think this might be a particularly long episode of ours, or a two-parter. Uh, so yeah, let's get right into it. Um, On Fairy Stories is the name of this essay that was originally delivered as a lecture at the University of St. Andrews on uh, March 8th, 1939 by, of, of course, uh, J.R.R. Tolkien. Um, it is, I think, the closest thing that he ever provided during his life of a summary of his philosophy about... Manifesto. Ra- yeah, yeah, yeah. About I mean, it's called On Fairy Stories, so it's about fantasy generally, but it's it's more than that, I think. it's It contains a lot of information just about what he thinks sort of the use of fiction in general should be in a lot of cases. Um, and uh, there's also a lot of sort of moral and aesthetic uh, judgments within. It's also worth noting... Uh, Kenny, you mentioned that it was a, a lecture. It was specifically uh, one of the Andrew Lang lectures at St. Andrews University in Scotland. Andrew Lang, who was a great, famous um, novelist, poet, and collector, uh, and writer, and anthologizer of fairy stories. One of the most prominent um, folklorists and fantasy writers ever. Um, so it makes sense that at the Andrew Lang lectures... He was talking about Andrew Lang, Andrew Lang's work, and how that related to his own work. The opening to this essay is amazing because he immediately says this essay was originally intended to be one of the Andrew Lang lectures in St. Andrews. So immediately off the bat, it's in Scotland on the occasion of honoring Andrew Lang, and it's about fairy stories. And I just want to read um, this opening. To be invited to a lecture in St. Andrews is a high compliment to any man. To be allowed to speak about fairy stories is, for an Englishman in Scotland, a perilous honor. I feel like a conjurer who finds himself, by mistake, called upon to give a display of magic before the court of an elf king. After producing his rabbit, such a clumsy performer may consider himself lucky, if he is allowed to go home in proper shape, or indeed to go home at all. There are dungeons in fairyland for the overbold. So immediately, he sort of sets us up with a really, really fast fairy story, in short, of a conjurer who has to produce magic at the court of an elf king. So immediately, we sort of see the use of fairy story. This is vivid. This is evocative. You're thinking of something more than if he just made a joke about how it's hard to talk in Scotland as an English guy. Um, and then the other thing is this gets on sort of one of Tolkien's essential beliefs, which is the distinctness of different cultures and, as he would put it, nations, although not in a sort of, or peoples maybe, not in a contempor- contemporary view of the nation state, um, and and that the Scottish and the English have uh, different cultures and different fairy story traditions. Um, and that's something that runs through his work, as listeners of the podcast will know, and, and also runs through this essay. So I just thought it was a really great uh, opening. Yeah, I agree. I, I will say also this is pedantic and you'll hate me for it. But uh, that that opening actually is not part of the lecture. That was like the pro the the sort of introduction that he wrote to when it was published that just those first couple paragraphs are yeah. not part of the lecture. So, I mean, in short, you know, get owned. But um, yeah, I'm fucking coping and seething right now. <laughs> this feels like last night when I lost seventeen thousand dollars on a. <laughs> On the uh, 49ers over parlayed with a refing malfunction. 
I, did you see those bets that that <laughs> I don't even know if these were real, but people were posting these on Twitter and I just choose to believe they're real. That was like plus 10 billion points. That's like there will be a five second cutaway of Patrick Mahomes senior driving a white Bronco. <laughs> you know what? We'll get into this later. But there is a connection. Tolkien in this essay makes the sports fairy story connection. Yes. Um, and I've made that comparison a lot um, in conversation with people who don't want to hear me talk about either of these two things, uh, which I'm obsessed with. Um, but I also think there's a connection between the degradation of fairy stories and how they can get bad and how fantasy can get bad that Tolkien talks about and how sports gambling can make the experience of watching sports really shitty. <laughs> That that is I want to hear your your take on this later when we get into yeah, the sports yeah. part, which is a small part, but I I also wanted to talk about it. So okay, I'll I'll say, uh, getting back to this, that the thing that I'm thinking about the most when I start reading this, um, this essay, you know, on fairy stories, is this term fairy stories. What does that mean? And is that first of all, I think that it's that's not used so much in uh, in in the American context, I think that's a more particularly British term. I don't know if it's a more dated term as well, but uh, I don't think that in the U.S. we we would call them fairy stories as much. Is that your experience too? Um, my well, my experience, I guess, is when he talks about fairy stories, he's talking about a number of things which I, growing up or today, would have known of as some combination of fairy tales, fairy tales, yes, yes, fairy tales, fantasy. And myths and legends. Yeah, yeah. He's he's talking a lot about what we would call fantasy. And, I mean, he's really kind of one of the inventors of what we call fantasy now. I mean, he, and this is a perfect segue, opens up the essay, what is a fairy story? And, and he also, a lot of this essay, I mean, it's not like he opens and says what is a fairy story. In some capacity, all, you know, 37 or whatever pages are defining the fairy story. And also um, defining what is not a fairy story. Yes, which is just as important. Opens with this. And he says, uh, what is a fairy story? In this case, he will turn to the dictionary. No reference to the combination fairy story. Fairy tale is recorded since the year 1750. This is, I'm quoting Tolkien now. And its leading sense is said to be A, a tale about fairies, or generally a fairy legend with developed senses. B, an unreal or incredible story. And C, a falsehood. He continues, the last two senses would obviously make my topic hopelessly vast, but the first sense is too narrow. Not too narrow for an essay, it is wide enough for many books, but too narrow to cover actual usage, especially so if we accept the lexographer's definition of fairies. Supernatural beings of diminutive size, in popular belief supposed to possess magical powers and to have great influence for good or evil over the affairs of men. And then he just sort of tears this apart. Right. He Yeah. The, the whole reason that he's starting off with this is that I think that he wants us to immediately separate the image of the fairy in our heads with uh, what he's calling fairy stories. Um, and I think that, yeah, like Sam said, he, he does he tears this apart. Just first of all, I think his most important point here is that the fairy of fairy story actually does not refer to the beings that we might think of as fairies, like Tinkerbell or one of those types of creatures, but it instead is referring to the land of fairy, which he spells F-A-E-R-I-E, uh, which is taken to be this mythical realm um, where fairies live but also lots of other things live and he, he another name for it is the perilous realm and uh, that is really the sort of centerpiece of this essay is that fairy tales do not require the presence of fairies uh, as such but what they do require is again what we might think of as sort of a necessary prerequisite for fantasy which is to say a, an alternate reality, an alternate world that may or may not be set in some remote, unrecognizable part of our world, like Lord of the Rings is set in the far distant past, uh, but it may as well be set in a different universe. To be in that setting and to sort of allow the reader to inhabit that world, which Tolkien sort of puts all of those worlds under the umbrella of fairy, the land of fairy or the perilous realm. 
this is both, I mean, the strength and weakness of this essay, I think, is that he undercuts this exact point a few times. I think especially when he's talking about the Norse. The division of the perilous realm from our own as a sort of abstraction of modernity. Again, he also touches on this. But I do think this exact point is really, it's really something you sort of feel. And I think it's really hard to put into words. Yeah, there's, you know, that is a good way to describe, I think, part of what the central uh, unifying theme of not just this essay, but of, I think, Tolkien's work and also, like, just his thought with a capital T, right? Is, like, you shouldn't be able to rationalize a lot of stuff that's important. In fact, perhaps the most important things you shouldn't be able to put into words necessarily. Um, He was sort of a... We've talked about in the past, I know we talked about on our most recent episode, the the World War One episode, about the arguments that he would have with his friend Christopher Wiseman. Uh, Wiseman is sort of a, a, a rational uh, Protestant product of the scientific revolution. Uh, Tolkien sort of fancies himself in that older Catholic mystical world where there are sort of mysteries of, of nature and of, and of the divine that you can't put into words, and that is like part of them we shouldn't even try to put them into words because we'll fail and it'll also take away some of their majesty so i think this idea of inhabiting a secondary world when you're reading and i have i have more on that later i think that that itself is wrapped up in this you know ideology i guess ideology in a good sense i think yeah and we'll loop back to this later i know we keep saying this but there's so much here but the idea of, of putting things into words, I don't think is purely literal. Of course, you're putting things into words, but he talks a lot about the idea of the magician versus the enchanter. Yes, yes. And enchantment versus magic. Um, and that the magic he's describing when he talks about magic isn't, and I don't know if he actually had the lexicon for this because it didn't exist when he wrote this this emerges later with dungeons and dragons or game of thrones and video games a lot of stuff me and kenny both like um but the sort of mechanical scientific description of magic in an imagined world versus an evocative description of enchantment through adjectives um and effects it's it's not scientific and I mean, and he wasn't anti-science. He was anti some of the effects of science on man. He was not opposed to scientific understanding. Right. He had a great right. interest in astronomy, for example. What you might say is he was fond of the pure sciences um, and opposed to the applied sciences. And of course, well, you know, when I say that he was, you know, not necessarily pro-science, I don't mean to say that he was some kind of knuckle-dragger or something. I, I really mean... Um, I think that the like basically just like you're saying, and I think to elaborate, uh, he was interested and fascinated by science to the extent that it helped us to in some way understand the mysteries of nature and I think of God's creation. You know, I think where he was, I would say, pretty anti-science is science to the end of increasing – mankind's domination over the natural world and of uh like you said of i think of probably just like engineering generally with the you know with obviously some like i'm assuming he wasn't Caveats. like yeah against the concept of the wheel or something you know but like oh that is the great argument against the ideology exactly exactly but i i i would say that his his letters one thing that comes up again and again is how much he hates the you know the the cars and the trains spoiling england and and you get into that in this essay towards the end yeah and it's and it's awesome so i think that that is all kind of wrapped up in this thing i remember in in joshua wren's book uh he goes on a there's a there's a big chapter and this is also part of uh tolkien's long letter i don't remember the number of it i 80 something maybe that that is about um the Silmarillion, uh, his, his, that's published now as part of the preface to the Silmarillion. Uh, but there's this concept of man and the machine. Uh, both, of course, man and machine are capitalized. And um, to, to you know, to what end do we create all like trains and and cars and and spaceships? Uh, are we sort of 
you know, unnaturally augmenting our own our, our own natural abilities. And again, to what end is this is this for for domination over nature for for sort of the sense of conquest? Uh, and is the act of doing this itself a, a form of sacrilege, you know, against our actual place in the world. And, and I think that that emphasis on on what the place of mankind is, is itself a sort of conservative uh, understanding, right, of, of the natural hierarchy in some way. I was, I was thinking about this recently about how it is mostly naturally conservative, but if you think about a Rousseauian or even like Graeber argument on this stuff, it's very similar, really. It's just, I guess, the left-wing distillation of that, which is probably why I'm so, although I don't agree with everything they say, into both of those thinkers. But I also think that what you were talking about with like, what is the real state of man, what is like the real state of reality, um, gets into Tolkien's skepticism on even assigning the like labels of like real or true state of existence which segues back into i guess the second page of this essay <laughs> yeah yeah we're when still, he talks we're about still so early when he talks about the definition of fairies as supernatural beings of diminutive size he says supernatural is a dangerous and difficult word in any of its senses looser or stricter but to fairies it can hardly be applied unless super is taken merely as a superlative prefix. For it is man who is, in contrast to fairies, supernatural and often of diminutive status, whereas they are natural, far more natural than he, such as their doom. And then he... And Kenny, did you look up this poem he quotes? No, I didn't. Yeah, but he, he quotes this poem at length. He um, quotes this poem. We can just read um, the beginning of it, I guess. I'll read part of it. O see ye not yon narrow road, so thick beset with thorns and briars, that is the path of righteousness, though after it but few inquires, and see ye not yon braid braid road, that lies across the lily leaven, continues for a while, and it ends with, that is the road to fair elfland, where thou and I this night mound gay, or might go. Um, and if you're a certain type of person, of which I'm not, though I like to think I am, but I'm not, uh, I didn't do too hot in my old English class, um, you might recognize this as Scots, which again, he's presenting this essay, um, as a series of the Andrew Lang lectures. It's in Scotland about Scottish writing and Scottish fairy stories. This specific essay, or poem, excuse me, it was a Walter Scott poem. Walter Scott, the Scottish poet, I believe 19th or, or 18th and 19th century Scottish poet. But it's about Thomas the Rhymer going to Elfland. Thomas the Rhymer was himself a Scottish poet, I believe 13th and 14th century. Um, and then after his life, where he was a poet, he was turned into a character in fairy stories. And this is a poem about him going to Elfland. So, there, I mean, there's so many layers here. There's the idea of fairy stories collecting and preserving or providing a view into an old culture. So this is a early 19th century fairy story about a much older medieval chronicler of fairy stories. Um, and him doing this is... I don't even know. It's just so respectable. I don't know that like you're going to pay that, that much attention to your audience that you're going to select like the perfect poem to be talking about fairy stories in Scotland. I don't know how much it matters, but it's really, really cool. I agree. And yeah, so I didn't look it up. So I completely did not pick up on that because he doesn't say what he's quoting, which makes it cooler. Uh, you know, ho assuming that some it, some at least some people in the audience will pick up on it. I think given what the audience was and where it was, I think that was probably a safe assumption. Yeah, for sure. And then in the next paragraph, when he says the diminutive being elf or fairy is, I guess, in England, largely a sophisticated product of literary fancy, there is a sort of subtle distinction between England and Scotland there. The point of this paragraph is largely to talk about broader fairy stories and to briefly insult the French, I guess, how um, the rationalization of fairy stories um, 
transformed the glamour, I'm quoting him again, the glamour of Elfland into mere finesse and invisibility. On their diminutive size, I think that this is sort of a something that I just never ever would have thought of that this is even a connection to make but but I love it though so he's he's talking about here um the introduction of fairies as being tiny is almost a way for at least again in his view is a way to make them sort of magical in the eyes of people who would only be able to see that majesty in the fact that Oh look how look how little they are. They can hide behind a blade of grass. Isn't that isn't that cool? He's kind of saying like they shouldn't they shouldn't need to be tiny. You know, he calls it mere finesse rather than the glamour. I I think that that's that's just such an interesting observation that that the the idea he calls it Elfland here. That's you know uh, interchangeable with fairy. That that the glamour of it is sort of transmuted through the you know through our culture as being. Uh, mere finesse in his words so to to be glamorous or, or fantastical you need these sort of uh, almost like almost like circus tricks like oh look how tiny it is and um i don't know i i'm not really summing this up summing this up really nicely but i think that it's a at some level it's sort of a criticism of like a almost cultural level lack of imagination and he historicizes it really well i think that's what makes this work I'm quoting him again. It seems to become fashionable soon after the great voyagers had begun to begun to make the world seem too narrow to hold both men and elves. When the magic land of High Brasil in the West had become the mere Brazil. Yes. Now, yes. Brazil or Brazil is a mythical island in Irish folklore to the west of Ireland. It bears no relation etymologically to Brazil, the nation. And I think he knew this, but it's a really effective sort of turn of phrase there. Yeah. That where we once had magical lands to the West that people did believe in. That's something we have to remember. And I think that will become apparent in this essay. The Norse did believe in those gods, right? Um, that when we don't have that magic land anymore, um, what we're left with is just, these real places off to the West in the new world. And then it becomes harder to imagine fairies and you turn them from a real terrifying and wondrous magic and art into, you know, fucking like Tinkerbell and garden gnomes. <laughs> yes. Yes. Into novelties. It all becomes novelty. You know, and, and I, we should also be, be clear. I mean, he's speaking from a Eurocentric point of view, of course. It, I think it applies both ways too. You know, I don't. Oh, equally well both ways. Yeah. I don't, I don't know off the top of my head. You, Sam, you probably know more than me about sort of indigenous uh, folklore and, and stuff, but I'm sure that it is a common trait of all folklore that there is sort of descriptions of magical lands that where we can't see them. Yes, that's a universal human trait. And it becomes much it universally becomes much harder when I can go on Google Maps and be like, oh, those are all the places right there. And that's also why, like, this is obviously very Eurocentric, but if you're writing from a, a indigenous Brazilian perspective, well, I can't say that assuredly because I don't know about it, but Let's just say you're writing from from a Pacific Northwest tribe about how after, you know, centuries of imperialism and colonization from Europeans, it becomes a real goal of cultural preservation to keep, you know, fairy stories and myths and folklore and religion alive. Yeah. Um, yeah. When it seems like the borders shrink so much and the imaginable past and imaginable futures shrink so much um and tolkien's own goal was to do the same right was to keep Elfland or you know the perilous realm alive as a real history after it had disappeared um in england and i think that in varying degrees this is a sort of common goal of cultures and writers and creatives and people in general across the world yeah yeah well put and i really want to quickly say and we'll touch on this later 
What Tolkien does in this essay that I he rarely does is he also draws upon like non-European folklore. And we'll get to that later. Mm, yes, yes, totally. I want to move on a little bit. We still haven't really <laughs> defined what a fairy story is in his words, other than that it takes place in fairy. So so like I said, in his definition, uh, which is, of course, the, the, the definition is the essay, right? It's not like a pithy one one sentence definition but one thing that that i can sort of draw from it uh, like i said it, it doesn't require fairies as such uh but one thing it, it does require in some measure is an account of good versus evil in some way in the perilous realm and so one thing that i thought was really interesting is that he gives the king arthur legend as an example of a fairy story like a quintessential example uh, even though it doesn't contain any fairies or elves, uh, and he actually calls King Arthur the King of Fairy, and, uh, and you know he gives the characters of, uh, of of Arthur and Lancelot and and Guinevere as being these sort of quintessential fairy story type characters, right? In this this quest for for the Grail and this um, betrayal of Guinevere by by going off and having an affair with Lancelot and everything, and there's there's it has all of the hallmarks of a fairy story, just despite it again not having any like fairies as such it's even and again even though it's like this maybe is also sort of a somewhat of a contradiction of, of his idea about it being set in fairy maybe it's not maybe you have something else to say but i mean that that is it, the story is very obviously set in a mythical version of england i guess touching on that at the bottom of page three says the first quotation of fairy in the oxford dictionary the only one before ad 1450 is significant it is taken from the poet Gower, that is John Gower, as he were a fairy, but this Gower did not say. He wrote as he were a fairy, as if he were come from fairy. And Gower lived in uh, the 14th century. He was a contemporary of Chaucer, and as we'll get onto very shortly, Thomas the Rhymer, who's already appeared, although not named, in this essay. Tolkien continues, Gower was describing a young gallant who seeks off to bewitch the hearts of the maidens in church. He quotes this poem, and then I think this is where it really comes in. The Queen of Elfland, who carried off Thomas the Rhymer, that was the first essay, or first poem we were reading, was a later poem about this account. Upon her milk-white steed swifter than wind, came riding by the Eildon tree as a lady, if one of enchanting beauty. So that Spencer was in the true tradition when he called the knights of his fairy by the name of Elf. It belonged to such knights as Sir Guyon rather than to Pigwigan, armed with a hornet's sting. These people of fairy he's talking about were real people. Thomas the Rhymer and John Gower were real poets and writers, as real and as historically accounted for, we can read their works, as their friend and contemporary Chaucer. So what I think he's getting at here is that the division between the fairy realm and the primary realm, or the real realm as we would put it, was not so well-defined 700 years ago. So I think that's where the contradiction comes in. Yeah, that's, that's good. I don't think good. he accurately describes this historical break. But I think when you understand it as less of a contradiction and more of a historical transition, where the world is, I guess, split into these two parts, that's where it sort of makes sense. That you can have Thomas the Rhymer and John Gower both writing about fairy stories and also inhabiting those worlds. But I think if Tolkien was being completely honest, he, and I think he does this in some of his letters, also sort of thought he inhabited the fairy realm. He does it all the time, constantly, about how he always talks about himself as a hobbit, and, and yes, 100%. And he views himself in the tradition of Thomas the Rhymer and John Gower, yeah. which... As he points out, although not verbatim, effectively points out, Andrew Lang did not. Yeah. You know, the yeah. Brothers Grimm did not. Yeah, he kind of shits on Andrew Lang the whole time. <laughs> he does, which is funny. Uh, at the, the honorary essay series for I know. Andrew Lang, hosted by uh, his alma mater. Yeah, I know. It's great. I was going to say, another um, another thing that he says that, that fairy stories have to contain, in his view, is what he calls the eucatastrophe, which is the opposite of tragedy uh and it's it's this it's this point in the story towards usually towards the end where all seems lost and the heroes are saved by some sort of miraculous or, or wondrous 
uh, upturn. He, he calls it like the lift at the end of the story. And I mean, the obvious example that comes to mind for me is the Eagles in Lord of the Rings. I don't know if it meets all of the criteria, but that's immediately what I think of is that it's like, there's no way Frodo and Sam are going to be able to get out of this, right? They're dying on next to Mount Doom. And, uh, and then through sort of an act of, of God, although it's really an act of Gandalf, <laughs> um, the, uh, the Eagles come and, and rescue them. Um, and he also, he likens it very clearly to, uh, the grace of God. He says it's a sudden and miraculous grace and it denies universal final defeat, right? Alluding to the, the, the eventual triumph of, of God over, uh, Satan and good over evil. Uh, he also, I think so interestingly points out that the gospels contain a fairy story. He doesn't go as far as to say the gospels are a fairy story. I think that that might be a bridge too far, but the gospels contain a fairy story and quote, the birth of Christ is the eucatastrophe of man's history, which I just think is such a beautiful phrase and is, it is. and is so evocative of what he's describing, right? Is that, that, uh, it, you know, in his religious tradition, uh, in Christianity generally, but especially in his sort of brand of kind of sort of conservative Tory-ish Catholicism, the idea of, of man as just being, you know, all, all is lost, right? Man, there is no hope for man. Uh, man is, is craven and fallen and, and it's the, the birth of Christ that is sort of like this thing that, man doesn't even necessarily deserve. Like he says, it denies universal final defeat. Um, all is lost, and then, you know, Christ comes. And also that that catastrophe is sort of magical, or is magic. It's not mechanizable. It's not easily explained. You can't scientifically deduce it. He writes that fairy itself may, be, may perhaps nearly be translated by magic, but it is magic of a per peculiar mood and power, at the furthest pole from the vulgar devices of the laborious scientific magician. There is one proviso. If there is any satire present in the tale, one thing must not be made fun of, the magic itself. Right. There would be no easier way to, to take the reader out of the secondary world than to sort of, you know, poke, poke jokes at the... Uh, the magic or the internal consistency of the world. Cause the whole point is that, no, this is the world that you're inhabiting. You know, I'm not going gonna... to ex yeah. explain an imaginary science by which magic is derived, which is most of modern fantasy or contemporary fantasy. I should say, right. It, it completely, it completely removes the mystical aspect, which was the sort of centerpiece of it for Tolkien. It's like, I think to an extent, as you're describing the, the sort of scientific, you know, process of magic. Of course, there will always be stuff that's that's made up and whimsical and fantastical about it. But the more detail you give, it, it begins to feel more and more like the real world. And the whole point of reading this is that I don't want to be in the real world right now. Yeah. And it's it's not just that it's not in the real world, but that it is a universal but not ubiquitous longing for the fairy realm. For for magic and for you catastrophe to happen, for us all to get magically saved at the end. Yes, right. Which is also, I think, Tolkien would agree as a believer himself. Uh, that's also kind of the the fundamental drive of a lot of the world's religions is the desire to be saved in some way. It's certainly for for the Abrahamic religions. I was going to also say, as far as how universal this is, I was he he has this quote: "Our fates are sundered, sundered and our paths seldom meet." Even upon the borders of fairy, we encounter them only at some chance crossing of the ways. And that's him talking about the elves. And I was thinking about how universal this is, right? Like, he, he says that the, quote, the definition of a fairy story, what is or what should be, does not then depend on any definition or historical account of elf or fairy, but upon the nature of fairy, the perilous realm itself and the air that blows in that country. And I think so many pieces of folklore sort of are this, even if they don't take place in explicitly another realm, it's our own world as another realm. Like, in, in the tale of the bamboo cutter, I don't think that ninth century Japanese people actually thought there were celestial moon goddesses being born among them. But it was, but it, it still feels real. It gets at universal truths. 
And the other thing I was thinking of was Robert Johnson selling his soul to the devil. I was trying to think of oh, that's what good. are more recent examples of fairy stories from the last 150 years. And that's a contemporary, almost contemporary, I'd say certainly modern American example of a fairy story. And Robert Johnson was a real guy in the same way that uh, Thomas the Rhymer was a real guy. Was Thomas the Rhymer going to Elfland or Robert Johnson selling his soul to the devil a real thing that happened? Like, we would say no, but it still gets at like a, a universal sense of magic that isn't mechanistically explained. How the magic makes you, how the devil makes you good at guitar or how the queen transports Thomas the Rhymer to Elfland. Like, it's not mechanistic. It's not scientific. But it is sort of universally believable. It would be the sort of thing that I think is, it hits at uh, things that it seems like all human cultures seem to develop. I think with, with like Robert Johnson and the guitar, my sense of that would be it's this idea of like, Basically that you can't get something that's really good without working for it and also not trading something really bad, I guess. Like, yeah, the Faustian bargain is universal. So, so like I said, there, there's a lot of discussion as well about things that are not fairy stories, right? And, and he says that this is important to, to talk about because it gets at the, the negative side of definition, right? Is that sometimes it's easiest to learn what something is by by learning what it's what it is not uh he he gives a list of of particularly three types of stories that he says are not fairy stories those are travelers tales dream stories and beast fables and i'll, I'll talk about each of those uh just quickly uh, he gives gulliver's travels as uh a great example of a traveler's tale. And he says, quote, such tales report many marvels, but they are marvels to be seen in the mortal world in some region of our own time and space. And now at, at the risk of completely contradicting what we've been saying and what we've been uh, reporting that Tolkien is saying, I think what he sort of is getting at here is that at least in Gulliver's travels, a lot of the marvel of it this is also comparable in a bunch of the hagiographies of like seafaring saints uh or like prester john or those those sort of old stories where people are traveling and going to these magical lands i think first of all they're they're very they're formulaic in that you're often going to be departing from somewhere familiar going to lots of magical places and then returning back to where you started um, and I think also that part of the stories is that the sort of like bizarreness of the places that they're going is like the point of which again, kind of is almost like, uh, almost like a circus trick, almost like, well, look at all these weirdos that we're finding. And that's kind of not the point at all of what Tolkien is saying that fairy stories are right. They, you know, at least th that's my interpretation. El Elfland is incomprehensible. We fundamentally cannot understand the magic, quote unquote, that powers the Elfland that Thomas the Rhymer went to, or the trees of Valinor, right? Lilliput is comprehensible. It's just fucking weird, right? <laughs> yeah, it's just yeah. an island of little people. Yeah. It's just, I guess the way I'd put it is they are not being whisked away to a real but incomprehensible place, they are going or voyaging, also implied in voyage is the return, but they are voyaging to a very comprehensible and weird place. And they're not, and it's not divine in the same way. Yes, yes. And I, and you know, I think perhaps a good example of something that I think sort of has some of the characteristics of a traveler's tale, but and, and maybe would be in some way, but not in, in the same way that Gulliver's Travels is and is a fairy story. I mean, setting aside Lord of the Rings, which I think meets those criteria, would be something. Uh, but it, Lord of the Rings, not so much because we don't start like in the quote unquote real world, I think would be something like Narnia. Right. You know, Tolkien's friend C.S. Lewis, where you have these these kids, you know, starting in the real world in contemporary England and you know, traveling through the wardrobe and going into a, a place that I do think is 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 incomprehensible to us in a way that Lilliput is not. Um, I think that's probably applies 
uh, better to the first book than it does by the end of the series. But, yes, yeah. yes, um, yes. But still, that that's sort of what I was just thinking of. And also, one one another point about this is I, I thought it was funny. Um, he is. Uh, he, he notes his horror that the reason that one that that the only reason a, uh, some people might think that Gulliver's Travels is a fairy tale is because the Lilliputians are small and in that they must be fairies. It's a great stance of solidarity with the short. <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, yeah, I'm always I'm always in for that. Um, so then the second thing that he says are not fairy stories are dream stories. And for that, of course, he gives the example of Alice's adventures in Wonderland, which I feel like is probably the the example that that would first come to mind unless you're a freak like us and you would think of like Link's Awakening or something. Spoilers for a game that predates either of our births by like a decade plus. Exactly. Although the remake is is quite good. I liked the remake a lot. I should play that. I still haven't. I really need to get on that. It's really good. It's a great game. The whole the original's great too. Anyway, so he says that a, a dream story is, you know, it's still not a fairy story even if in every other respect it is a fairy story. The very uh, the very the, the reveal at the end of it being a dream renders it quote gravely defective, and um he says uh, the story taking place in dream quote cheats deliberately the primal desire at the heart of fairy the realization independent of the conceiving mind of imagined wonder, and then he says dream stories are by definition not quote independent of the minds and purposes of men unquote. And actually, that kind of ties back to the Traveler's Tale, too, I think, in that... Men do something to get to these places, whereas in fairy stories, things happen to men. Elves do things. Exactly, which is more magical and more mystical. It's out of man's control, and it's not... This is one of the points that I, I was actually seeing some contradictions, and I want to get your thoughts on it. But at least in this context, it is very not anthrocentric, right? Humans are not... Humans are the the protagonists and at the center of the story in some way, um, but they are not the sort of only driving force like Gulliver might be uh, in in Gulliver's Travels, right? So um, just the fact that dream stories are taking place within, like, within the mind of a human. I mean, The Wizard of Oz is an example of it, of course, but also this also kind of reminds me of the wizard at the end of the wizard of Oz, right? Is that it's something that you think is this incredible thing, uh, and magical and you're in this world. And then at the end, you're sort of deflated at the set. Obviously, you know, whether you're actually believing that this happened or could happen is beside the point of this entire essay. Right. But, but by being explicitly told this didn't happen, it kind of cheats the whole thing concept of it right is that it's it's almost in a way not taking itself seriously uh which is you know to tolkien is like the first you know cardinal sin of of fairy stories they have to take themselves seriously in some way and and treat their internal logic as being real the third one he calls beast fables he gives the example of peter rabbit uh aesop's fables but also uh count i think as as one of these or many of them he says well they that while they share in common what he calls one of the primal desires of fairy quote the desire of men to hold communion with other living things unquote uh that that beast stories place the animals as the heroes and are many times just using the animals as a way to tell a human story using again quote the animal form as only a mask upon a human face and it's they're usually going to just be telling an ordinary human story, uh, which is normally like an allegory or a satire. I mean, and, and that's exactly what Aesop's fables are. Animal Farm's a great example of this. It's a human story. Uh, it's explicitly about uh, the Soviet Union. Um, and it's so it's a satire. It's just that all the characters are talking animals uh, to sort of give it a, you know. Chutzpah. <laughs> yeah, yes, yes, thank you. You know, some novelty in a, in a way. So so those are the three, though. Traveler's Tales, Dream Stories, and Beast Fables. I think one thing I do want to get your thoughts on, and I don't want to catch you, you know, having not thought about this, but this is one thing I was noticing that I thought could be sort of a potential contradiction, and I'm not sure exactly what I think of it, is that in those two definitions of Dream Stories and of Beast Fables, he says something that I think on their face seem to be at odds which is that dream stories are not are not fairy stories because 
uh, because they are sort of anthrocentric in a particular way, that they're centering on the dream and on the mind, but that beast fables aren't fairy stories necessarily because they don't feature man. It's about the the scientific understanding of man. It's that the, in the dream story, there's a scientific mechanistic understanding of man, which explains away how this could happen because it's just a dream. And in the beast stories, it's obviously not real. And it's just animals as analogy for other things. Whereas in fairy stories, it's about humans, but the medium by which these things happen are unknowable. You can't just explain them away. They're, it's it's subcreative. Yeah, that's actually, yeah, that's nicely put. Dream stories and beast fables are both sort of explainable in a particular sort of way. Dream stories are easily explainable by just, oh, it was all a dream. It was made up. You can explain the whole thing with, you know, just those few words. And I think a beast fable is explainable just in that you're not ever supposed to believe that something like this, like, it, it, it's fake in a way that a fairy story I don't think should be. Uh, and that it's clearly just animals, but, like, they're behaving just as sort of rational, self-interested people would. Yes. What I was really interested in on this section was less so the actual substance of it, and more sort of as an addendum to our episode on race, that the main beast fable that he talks about the most is the monkey's heart, which is a Swahili uh, beast fable. Yeah, I picked and up on that too. he explains the plot of it and dives into how it's a beast fable and not a fairy story. But one thing that I was interested in is that he cites a Swahili um, story and treats it the same as he would a European one. And I do think that's significant when you dive into his thought. And, and yeah, to be to be clear, I also think, you know... Uh, Charles Mills makes some, I think, really compelling and uh, and and interesting arguments that that I largely agree with in his essay about race that we did uh, about Tolkien and race, excuse me, that that we did uh, uh, two episodes on because there was so much to talk about. Um, he makes some, I think, really good points about drawing comparisons between how Tolkien. Uh, talks about orcs and, you know, what you might call like orcish culture or really the the lack thereof as it's portrayed in the books and and the uh, a prevailing sort of European sentiment during the colonial period and, and to a large extent still about uh, that some cultures and traditions are just more valuable in some way than others. And there is, I think, in large part, the evidence that Tolkien subscribed to that, if if even just unconsciously, might be the nature of the story of Lord of the Rings, which is a big part of what Mills is arguing. And I think, though, that I don't see any direct evidence that Tolkien, Tolkien's sort of aptitude for what he would call like northern uh, legends and and folklore and history— um, is really, and he said as much in his letters that that it, it comes from just the fact that, it, like, he has a love for England because it's his home, and and he he loves the English countryside. It also gets at his sort of sense of cultural respect that every culture has their own stories and fairy stories and beast fables, and that they should all be treated with respect and real scholarly interrogation and or enjoyment. I agree. And I and I think that that also does a little bit, kind of, actually more than a little bit. I think it does butt heads with what Mills is saying. Once you start talking about the effect of what it's doing and of what like Lord of the Rings is doing and sort of things in the real world that it resembles, I think that Mills's argument becomes a lot stronger. I don't think that it's fair or correct to sort of assume that Tolkien himself had the view that Mills is associating with Lord of the Rings about the real world. As a philologist, I don't think that he sort of viewed various cultures and languages as being like inherently superior to others. And I think that, like Sam said, we don't want to read too much into it, but this is perhaps an argument in that camp uh, where there's kind of not that many points to argue one way or the other across Tolkien's bibliography. Okay, so now we, we've talked a little bit about the the negative dimensions of fairy stories, right? What are not fairy stories? I, I want to talk an adjacent thing that, that, that Tolkien mentions 
is the tendency of what he calls folklorists and anthropologists uh, who make arguments that certain stories that are built around the same motifs are, quote, the same stories. This tendency to collapse a, a tale or a story down to, like, its bare bones or its essence and then try to use that to argue that uh, it's the same as another story that you've applied that same process to. I kind of think of... Um, the first thing I thought of is like the concept of the hero's journey. I don't know if that's really the same thing. I mean, that's the sort of thing that you can apply to all sorts of different stories and including like Lord of the Rings. Right. But I think that, uh, that's just so not interesting for Tolkien because he has this, this great quote, quote, it is precisely the coloring, the atmosphere, the unclassifiable individual details of a story, and above all, the general purport that informs with life the undissected bones of the plot that really count. Uh, which, you know, Sam, I know that you and I share the same opinion about this. Um, I, the other thing I thought of after the, I thought of the hero's journey was the, uh, was book one of Fellowship of the Ring, where, a lot of people in reading it would say, you know, of course, I'm quoting this imaginary person, would say, nothing even happened. Boo! I know. Bad take. Uh, book one of Fellowship of the Ring, lots of stuff happened. The point of stories isn't to, you know, summarize them. The point of stories is to inhabit the world of the story. And that's why book one of Fellowship of the Ring is awesome, because you're in this world and it's just these hobbits going on misadventures, meeting Tom Bombadil, one of our, our all-time favorites. Top three, and he's not three, and he's not two. I think if if someone finds that to be unappealing or, or uninteresting, I think a lot of the time it's because you're going into Lord of the Rings expecting a grand, fantastical narrative, which there is one, but there's also stuff like that. Um, which I think is exactly this sort of thing, the coloring, the atmosphere. These are details that ultimately, in a sense, don't actually matter, but they they matter almost more than the actual story. They're, they're what matter the most. And Tolkien also doesn't... And I, I'll say two things, actually. One, it is true that a lot of these myths and stories share common origin points. It's also true that even unrelated to what Tolkien's talking about, there's a lot of people who will say, XYZ myth... And LMO myth are all really the same thing when they're not, and there's not a common origin point. But even outside of that, because I don't really think that's what he's talking about. So Tolkien says that people are, quote, inclined to say that any two stories that are built around the same folklore motive or are made up of generally similar combinations of such motives are, quote, the same stories. We read that Beowulf is only a version of dot irdmenenkin, that the Black Bull of Norway is Beauty and the Beast. And obviously this is not true because as you know, to as, as Kenny pointed out, it's the coloring, it's the atmosphere which really makes these stories what they are. But there's something else that I think Tolkien is getting at, even though he doesn't directly state it here, that ties back to what we were saying earlier about the disappearance of fairies or the transformation of fairies from these unknowable, powerful, magical creatures to you know, little fucked up garden things. I would say it's a, it's a, the, the assigning of stories, you know, whether they're fairy stories or myths or legends with basic common origins and a jumbling of the same basic puzzle parts is tempting and somewhat accurate, but just as often wrong and misleading or, and I think this is actually more accurate dismissive and, what I said, wiggishly self-satisfying. There's a sort of self-satisfaction in modernity that we figured out the processes by which humans come up with stories, and it's all just jumbling the same basic elements, and it's all sort of juvenile or primitive from these old cultures, um, and we, knowledgeable people today standing at the end of history, at the vantage point of progress, can look back and say, Beowulf is just combination of this trope, this trope, this trope, which are in all stories, and a combination of this element, this element, this element, which are in all Germanic stories. And that is like a little true, but it's, it's really sort of patronizing, um, I think, towards both readers 
and um, the generations who came before us who wrote and uh, recorded and told these stories. And almost more importantly, it's also reducing storytelling to a science. Yes. Right? It's Which it's not, which is Tolkien's no, argument. The whole is that point it's is not a science. It, you're supposed to be enchanted. Tolkien says this verbatim. So with regard to fairy stories, I feel that it is more interesting and also in its way more difficult to consider what they are, what they have become for us, and what values the long alchemic processes of time have produced in them. Yeah, he he also makes a point as well about how um, he he understands what he says. It's a great quote. Quote, the desire to unravel the intricately knotted and ramified history of the branches on the tree of tales, unquote. And the reason he says he understands that is because it's similar to his own study of, quote, the tangled skein of language, which is so good. Um, It's so good. I mean, it makes a ton of sense is that he, he finds it you know, rewarding to, and understands the, uh, the impulse to study sort of the genealogy of all of these different stories and of how they connect with one another. But I think at the end of the day, what he's saying is that what's actually interesting is what is the story? Not like, it's not always as interesting. Where did it come from? And, and what are its sort of roots and, and all, and which is, you know, also the reason why he hated when people would talk about him in reference to the works that he created, right? The work should sort of be their own thing. And if there's, you know, if the work is successful, it should transport the reader regardless of who the reader is and regardless of who the author is. Yeah, I completely agree. Um, okay. I'm going to move forward a little bit. I want to talk about, uh, the connection between children and fairy stories. This is a, a decent part of uh, the of the essay. He says, people who see fairy stories as child-specific, and now I'm quoting, tend to think of children as a special kind of creature, almost a different race, rather than as normal, if immature, members of a particular family and of the human family at large. Uh, and then, you know, he goes on to argue basically that children have no special aptitude or or understanding or fondness for fairy stories that is, you know, greater in any degree than adults, uh, and that only some people, regardless of their age, adult or, or child, have any special taste for fairy stories, in, in his words. Uh, and I think that this is, again, going towards what he's, what he's kind of doing as a, a light indictment of the lack of imagination in our culture, that we sort of relegate the more I- imaginative forms of art uh, that, that we produce as, as being, uh, you know, juvenile, right? This is something that belongs in the realm of children, uh, not sort of us serious adults. It's deeply infantilizing. And something else I think about is how I think a lot of my favorite, um, books or movies or TV shows, which aren't fantasy in the classical sense, I sort of consider as fantasy, and this is going to get cringe for a second. Um, one of my favorite movies is Drive, um, which I know a lot of uh, listeners will be groaning, um, throwing shit at their screen. Driving their car off the road. Driving their car off the road. Um, but something I really like about Drive, besides thinking it's a good movie, is that, A, it's a fantasy. It's obviously all fantastical. Nothing about it is... It's more of a fantasy than Lord of the Rings, Right. Um, but also the director and the, the, uh, novelist who wrote the book it's based on both explicitly call it a fantasy. So the guy who directed drive understood it as a fantasy movie and he was directing a fantasy. Um, and I think that like something I think about is with the whole, like fairy stories are for kids that Tolkien also talks about, and this might be jumping the gun is that they're not just for kids but that writing a good piece of fantasy is really, really hard. And I think the perception that they're just for kids comes from the fact that a lot of fantasy, most fantasy, I should say, is really poorly written and deeply um, unchallenging in any artistic sense and is thus most easily read by children. Like, that's the YA genre in a nutshell, right? What he's talking about sort of predates that. Well, yeah, I mean, he's this is before fantasy really existed as a genre. But like, I bet he does talk a lot about you know fairy tales and fairy tales being reduced for kids and yes, Arthur yeah. Lang and stuff. 
Um, and I mean, I, I don't think he would say that Arthur Lang was a poor writer. Certainly not. But I do think that the fairy tales being written for kids sort of, and he's even noticing this, became a positive feedback loop. He separately makes the argument that oftentimes either writing stories or adapting stories specifically for children often just ruin the stories because you're sort of intentionally removing nuance and uh, you know, details and things that, like you said, Sam, are sort of challenging in some way, artistically or morally or otherwise, uh, that, you know, children will also, if they don't appreciate, it'll just kind of be lost on them. It won't actually detract from their enjoyment of it if it's a good, compelling story. Children are not, you know, members of another species, like Tolkien is saying, right? They're they're just us. They're just immature, and, you know, they will appreciate a story, a good story, the same way that, uh, you know, a receptive adult would. Um, but one one point that he makes about fairy stories, uh, about why he thinks that they're actually uh, potentially more useful for adults than for children, is that he says that fairy stories have lots of things that adults, you know, gen- he says, generally have more need for than children, which is funny. And the list he gives is fantasy, recovery, escape, and consolation. Uh, I think escape is the one that he spends the most time talking about, and I think, you know, fairly fairly so. Uh, but but it, it's a great point, is that children may be at some level, you know, more imaginative than some adults. I don't even know that that is true. That might be sort of a, a cultural... Uh, I think it's true. I think it's true. Uh, not not innately, but I think typically. Yeah, yeah, that's probably... You're probably right. Um, and But still, um, I think that the point that adults have more need for escape from literature, uh, that seems to me to be very, you know, very true. I think a lot of adults could benefit more from... He also, I I will get into this later, but I love his discussion about how escape is kind of made into a, uh, into a dirty word for, you know, oh, what do you mean? Like, you can't handle reality? You want to escape? Yeah. there's There's a great part of it about that. Yes, there's there's a great there's there's a great section of, about that. Actually, we we can. It's a little. I would say before we move forward, there was actually when he was talking about Thor, I sort of wanted to touch on that. Oh, go because he talks about the origin, right? This section is about the origin of fairy story, and he writes: at one time, it was a dominant view that all such matter was derived from quote nature myths. The Olympians were personifications of the sun, of dawn, of night, and so on. And all the stories told about them were originally myths. Allegories would have been a better word. Of the greater elemental changes and processes of nature. Epic, heroic legend, saga. Then localized these stories in real places and humanized them by attributing them to ancestral heroes. And then... Okay, sorry, I should finish. And finally, these legends, dwindling down, became folktales. Morten fairy stories, nursery tales. That would seem to be the truth almost upside down. The near the so-called nature myth or allegory of the larger processes of nature is to its supposed archetype, the less interesting it is, and indeed the less of it of a myth capable of throwing any illumination, whatever, on the world. And then he goes down and he talks about Thor. Thor is the thunder god, Thor is the lightning god, but Thor also has a lot of attributes not inherently... um, that of lightning, right? Not inherently that of thunder. Then the next part of the nature myth is, okay, so the Norse look around and they imagine someone like them who's also the thunder god. And Tolkien responds to this sort of nature myth uh, theory with Thor. It is more reasonable to suppose that the farmer popped up in the very moment when thunder got a voice and face, that there was a distant growl of thunder in the hills every time a storyteller heard a farmer in a rage. So of course there's a tie to nature, but it's not like people just saw thunder and then imagined Thor. Thor is also a character, a god with his own agency that's partially tied to thunder, but his own stories. And when you reduce Thor to just being, he was how Swedish people in 840 um, theorized the existence of lightning, that completely robs all of the mythology about Thor of its meaning and its resonance and its literary value. And how it kind of actually connects with 
with real people. Yes, how it connects with real people. I, I don't have anything to add there, so I think we can we can keep going. Move right along. I think we also covered uh, children and fairy stories. He does a couple times in the essay uh, make points about how people misunderstanding children seems to be increasing with time as the amount of children decreases, which means he's definitely uh, fertility-pilled, which oh, I think yeah. definitely part of his Catholicism. Perhaps this is one point in the... Uh, Jonathan Witt and Jay Richards column, uh, yes. but I, but, but but I think that you know I'm gonna go out on a limb and say that their interest in birth rates is for slightly different reasons. Yes, than- yes. I don't think Tolkien <laughs> was super concerned with the downfall of the white race, partially because <laughs> Tolkien definitely did not believe in the white race. Yes, if yes. you know one thing about him, it's that he does not think that Welsh people. And German people and Spanish people are the same race. I don't even know that he thinks Scottish people and English people no, are he the doesn't. same race. That's how he opens this essay, more or less. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. podcast is co-hosted by Sam Lieberman and Kenny Tellerico. Our cover art is by Claire Harple. Our theme music is by Kenny Tellerico. Any materials or writings discussed in this episode are linked below in the show notes.